The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, playing with her son Isaac. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not inherit along with my son Isaac. The matter was very distressing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for it is through Isaac that offspring shall be named for you. As for the son of the slave woman, I will make a nation of him also because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about into the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water of the skin was cast, was gone, she cast the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, Do not let me look on the death of a child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Do not be afraid, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Come lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy, and he grew up and lived in the wilderness, and he became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Pharaoh, and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Holy wisdom, holy word. So before the kids leave, I've got a question for you guys, but really for all of, all of you can answer this too. In that story, which is a really sad story at, up until the very end, who was God speaking to? Here did God, who did God hear? Not who was God speaking to. Who, who did God hear? Anyone? The boy. Thank you. Yes. God heard the boy. Hagar probably had the most immense grief in her heart over watching her son be thirsty and hungry and probably going to die. And yet it was the cries of the child that God heard and the angel reassured Hagar, I've heard the cries of the child. I've heard the boy. So I want to encourage the kids that God hears your voices. And even if you don't have words to say, even if your heart is just heavy and sad, God hears you and God responds. God responds to the cries of children. So... With that, you are welcome to go to Junior Church if you would like to help with a gift for Caitlin. And you're welcome to do that after service, too, if you want to sit in. That's fine. Um, I realize that is not the easiest scripture, nor the kind of scripture we often read. Um, but I think it's important for us as a church to read the challenging scriptures as well as the pleasant ones. Uh, to be reminded that this is not a clean and tidy faith that we have. It's not a simple and straightforward. It's not a simple and straightforward um, thing to follow God and to listen for God. And there really aren't any easy answers. Um, I also chose that scripture because it was the lectionary appointed reading for today. Um, 
If you're not familiar with the lectionary, it's a, a, it's a readings that are lined up for three years um, to be read each Sunday. So if a church follows the lectionary over three years, you will get the bulk of the, of the stories and scriptures that um, have the most impact and influence on Christian faith. So I think there's some interesting tie-ins, though, in that scripture with what I would like to talk with you about, too. Um, and we'll come to some of those a little later on. Um, but the, the fact that it's from the lectionary is important, too. So I hope you all appreciated my giant stack of Bibles. Tim said, uh, as I was getting ready, he's like, well, maybe you should bring in some of your books about interpreting the Bible, too. And I said, well, we'll need to bring the whole bookshelf. <laughs> um, it's amazing how much we write and read not only in scripture itself, but about scripture, and it's so individualized. And that just wasn't the case up until a few hundred years ago. And in fact, before we ever had a Bible, we had a church. The church is older than the Bible, because as soon as Jesus came onto the earth, people were paying attention to him and following him. As soon as he died and was resurrected, people were modifying what it meant to be Jewish or what it meant to be a Gentile, and to be a follower of Christ, and eventually a Christian. And as they did that, now this is going to be a little dry. I hope you can follow along. I gave you notes inside your bulletin, and the back of your notes is blank, because scientists have found that if you doodle, you actually retain more. So if you're looking down coloring, I won't be offended. Um, but I think it's important that we know about our Bible and our church. So uh, the books that we consider the New Testament were mainly written between 50 and 150. And if you look at that in comparison when Jesus was alive, we're looking at a pretty big gap even from the time that he died to the time that the first person wrote down their memories about what he said and did and what, it, what he meant, what his life here meant. And then the last books were written almost more than 100 years after Jesus. So then the next big date I gave you guys was um, there are two dates at the same time. A guy named Irenaeus, he was a bishop in the early church, and he wrote lots of letters to different people, and he cited in one of his letters one of the New Testament writings. That's the first time we even know of somebody talking about the New Testament in the early church, except for the books themselves. At the same time, the church had developed what we now call the Apostles' Creed. Um, I don't know how often we say that in this. Do we say that? Oh, not very often. But some, in some traditions, it's said very often. Um, so the Apostles' Creed was about that same time. And then you have to jump 150 years ahead to the Nicene Creed, which was made at the Council of Nicaea. That was a big council of a lot of bishops who came together, and they wrote a very long creed. So we should be happy we don't say that every Sunday. <laughs> um, and then the last thing on your timeline there is 367 when Athanasius wrote out the first list of what we now call the New Testament it's important to remember that as the early church was developing and deciding what it meant to be followers of Christ and what it meant to be Christians that the Bible developed alongside of these creeds these things that show the tradition of the church Right under that, you'll see this little diagram of tradition and scripture. And it's so important to remember that scripture and tradition inform each other. There's a, there's a, a lot of people in our 
um, in American culture especially that want to point out specific Bible verses and use them to justify certain behaviors or, um, or, or make excuses for things that really are their own personal opinions. And that's good to talk about the Bible, but the Bible was not written falling out of the sky by God in the King James Version. The Bible was compiled from all these different sources, these letters, these stories, so that we could read it as a community and decide for ourselves as a community what it means. All of that, of course, through the power of the Holy Spirit. If you fast forward about a thousand years, Martin Luther looked at what the church was doing. Some of the, um, some of the Catholic church had gotten this equation out of whack and had decided that tradition should inform scripture more than scripture informed tradition. And it had led to a lot of abuses and a lot of negative things going on in the church. And Martin Luther said, we need to go back to the Bible. And it so happened that the printing press was invented at the same time. And so Martin Luther's incredible spirit-led concern for the church coincided with the ability of the masses to hold on to the Bible and read it. And that started several hundred years of a wonderful time where people could read the scriptures on their own, hear what God was saying through them, but also where people fought with each other and killed each other a lot um, over, over what they thought about the scripture. So that's where our tradition comes in. The United Methodist Church was um, founded isn't the right word because John Wesley didn't exactly found the Methodist tradition, but his followers founded the Methodist tradition, um, and John Wesley was an Anglican. So this is an Anglican book of common prayer. It has the, uh, it has the lectionary in the back here, and it has all kinds of wonderful things that were written in the 1600s to give order to the Anglican Church. The Anglican Church was the way that England said, we really don't like all this arguing. We don't really like the Catholic Church abusing power in the church, but we really don't like all of the Protestants, the protesters, saying that the Bible is the only thing we're going to listen to, because what does that mean? And so the Anglican Church was founded as a middle way between the two. And we as Methodists, following that heritage, I think that we have a calling to maintain that balance where scripture and tradition inform one another. And as Methodists, we have our own book of order. Ta-da! The book of discipline. I think it's important that we understand we don't all have to agree. It's perfectly fine. I would like you to come tell me if you disagree because no one in the first service did. Only the people who liked me came up to talk to me. So I want you to come tell me. But I think that as people who come in the tradition of the Anglican Church as Methodists who are looking to find that middle way where scripture and tradition inform one another, we have a calling to follow what our church order is. Sometimes we may decide that we don't like it, and then we're going to have to talk together as a community about what it means to change that order or to decide not to follow it. But our order is important. The creeds are important. The songs we sing are important. All those things are important because we need an anchor. We need a firm foundation. The world is full of suffering and struggling and difficulties. 
And when those things come, we can't just have a place that we go on Sunday that feels good or where we get to see our friends. Because what if our friends don't show up anymore? What if we have a huge earthquake and our building falls down? It has to be more than that. It has to be the foundation of who we are. I will tell you one more interesting little story um, about church history, and then I'll stop with the dry part, I promise. Um, <laughs> in, the, in the 1800s, many of you know about the Enlightenment. Instead of living in the Middle Ages, we moved to this time where the age of reason had come, where people had a great confidence in the ability of humanity to move us forward, to develop things that would enrich human lives all over the globe. There was a strong sense of globalization, which is kind of funny to say now because we have airplanes and internet connections. But uh, even in that time, people were traveling so much more and communicating so much more. And there was a strong sense of optimism that human beings could solve their own problems and that we didn't need God anymore. We had science. The world wasn't this confusing, mysterious, frightening place. We could grab onto some control and know what was going on. And that's not all bad. But if you have a church that you're running and you want to continue telling people how the universe operates and how things are going to go, that's a very frightening thing. Science is scary. And if you have a Bible that you want to follow as a good Protestant and do what the Bible says, like Martin Luther taught us, then science is a really scary thing because the Bible says things that are not scientific. I don't know if you've noticed that. <laughs> so the Catholic Church in 1869 said, you know what? You can have all the science. You can have all the modernity you want. We're going to say that when the Pope sits in his chair and holds his scepter and wears his Pope hat and does his Pope thing, he is infallible. The Pope is infallible. And do you know papal infallibility has only been used once? But the church had to respond to what was happening in the world to respond to modernity. And they said, we're going to respond by saying that the Pope has the ultimate authority in the whole world. And when the Pope wants to say something, the Pope is right. It wasn't just the Catholic Church. Two years later, some of the leaders in some of the Protestant denominations came forward and said, we believe in biblical inerrancy. The Bible is without error. I'm not sure which Bible they were thinking of. I, actually, I think it was the King James Bible. But the Bible is without error. And that is where we get so many of our ideas about young earth creationists, so many interpretations that would say I should be sitting quietly in the back with my head covered rather than up here talking to you. Because the Bible says a lot of things we don't take literally as United Methodists. So you see this, this trend in the church, whether it was the Catholic church conferring all the power and authority in the Pope, whether it was our church, our tradition, uh, well, not ours, because we're the middle way, but the Protestants responding to this power, the modernity, by grabbing onto power. Grabbing onto power. Jesus didn't do a lot of grabbing onto power. Just want to point out. <laughs> so um, the next little diagram on your notes it says Word of God. I always have this image of the televangelist, you know, like holding on to their Bible, the Word of the Lord, and slapping their Bible. The Word of God comes to us in three ways. The Word of God comes through Jesus, that's the embodied Word of God. 
the word of God comes through the Bible, which is the written word of God, and through preaching, which is the proclaimed word of God. But here's the thing. Brad's not here. I could get up here and say any darn thing I want. <laughs> At some point, you'd probably turn off my mic, and you might make me leave. But preaching is not the word of God until the Holy Spirit enlivens it, right? I hope the Holy Spirit's saying something through me right now. But I know I'm making mistakes. The Bible is really not that much different because this thing is not perfect. It's a mess. It's been translated and interpreted and pieces have been lost and re-pieced together. This is not a tidy little book. It's a mess that we have. But it's a mess that God is using, just like all of us just like the church. I put some quotes from the Book of Discipline down there for you. Um, I'm going to read the second one to you in a minute. But here's where I think all of this applies in your life, whether you consider yourself a United Methodist to the core or whether you're just visiting and you're never coming back because this is a really boring sermon. Um, (laughs) I think we have to know who we are Even if we don't agree with what the church says, we need to know what the church is so we can disagree with it. The Bible is not just a feel-good book. It is the inspired word of God, and it's inspired when we read it through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the same goes for us being a church. The same goes for me speaking. But at the same time, the Bible is not a powerful thing all by itself. The books... I don't have a Bible... (laughs) <laughs> the Bible doesn't, it's not a magic book. It's not going to start floating around. It's not going to hit you if you're sinning in the same room as it. Thank you. This one wouldn't hurt anyway. But, um, <laughs> bigger Bible. <laughs> it's just a book. It's just a book until we read it together, until we decide together what it means. Scripture has authority because of the community that interprets it. Not all by itself as a book. I think that means a lot in a world where everything is changing. It's really uncomfortable. I don't like change. I would rather things stay the same. I've always told my husband, if somebody could make me, like, I think cars are lucky. If somebody could just give me this magic fluid I could drink three or four times a day so I never had to eat different food, that would be fine with me. I'm a really boring person, actually, in my core. But, um, but change happens, and sometimes it's really difficult. Um, I went to Seattle Pacific for my undergraduate degree 10 years ago and having gone for five years to churches that talked about inerrancy and said that women are supposed to be submissive to their husbands and their pastors and I heard a lot of things that really spoke to me but a lot of things that hurt and confused me and then I went to Seattle Pacific and and I saw female professors who were also pastors and Um, I saw amazing things that that changed my life, and I found a community that felt safe. It felt safe for a person who grew up in an abusive family. It felt safe for a person who had gone to these sometimes really wacky churches. It felt safe in a world that was so chaotic. And then I had the immense joy and privilege of going back last year to start seminary. And I've just been reveling in that community of refuge and of peace, And then three weeks ago, somebody walked onto my campus with a shotgun and shot several students. And that refuge is gone for me. It's just gone. And it won't ever come back. 
I don't know if I've ever been so proud of the way that my campus has responded and my professors have spoken into this darkness and to the horror of what happened at my school. But it's never going to be the same place for me. And that makes me very sad. But it's okay. Because it had been an idol for me. The foundation of my faith has to be on the traditions of the church and on the scripture. And this church can fall down and we can all get scattered, but there's another church that is still going to sing these songs and they're going to read these words together. And they will have meaning for us because they're the foundation of our faith. And we don't have to agree on what the foundation of our faith is. That's why we have 10,000 denominations. So if you don't like it here, there's something that's bound to fit you. Or you can make your own church. I think that's how most churches happen. Bad sermons, new church. (laughs) (laughs) But whatever the details are about how you worship and what you do in worship, we have to know what the foundation of our faith is. It's the only way we make it through the sea of change that occurs in our lives. So I'm going to read this quote from the Book of Discipline, and then I've just got one more thing to share. It's the last one, reading scripture for change. As we open our minds and hearts to the word of God, through the words of human beings inspired by the Holy Spirit, faith is born and nourished, our understanding is deepened, and the possibility for transforming the world become apparent to us. Our faith is not just about doing something that feels good. We need that. And if you are in a place of sadness and suffering and loneliness right now, please just hear that faith is something that you can dig into and hold on to amidst anything else. But it's also something that spurs us on into transforming the world. I really love the United Methodist Mission I realize there's some verbiage that's uncomfortable, but to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. It's interesting because this this quote doesn't say so much that we're making them, but when we read the scriptures through the Holy Spirit, faith is born and nourished. I like that. But it opens possibilities for transforming the world. And we can't transform the world if we're not willing to change with it. It's what the Catholic Church did, and it's what many Protestants did in the 1800s because they were afraid of science. And I think a lot of the church still hasn't caught up. A lot of people think that Christians still don't like science, and we still don't think that it's true that the earth is billions of years old. It's really unfortunate. We need to be ready to change as the world around us changes, or we can't transform it. So you can disagree with me again. That's fine. Again, come tell me about it, but... I just wanted to close by saying that I feel called to try new ideas. Not because I've got the right ideas, but because I don't have the right ideas, we have to keep trying things until we find the things that bring transformation. And while we're doing that, we have to hold on to the foundation of our faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. Please pray with me. God, thank you for this incredible church. Aldersgate is a strong, comforting, and challenging community. It blesses, it blesses so many of us. Thank you for the United Methodist Church, for our Methodist tradition and our Anglican heritage, for all the things that give us a strong foundation. Help us to face the change in the world, whatever it is, 
whatever comes at us, not out of fear and not grasping for power. Help us to face the changes that come towards us, rooted, strongly rooted in who you are and who Jesus was on this earth, in the scriptures, and in our community through the power of the Holy Spirit. And let us use that to go forward and be willing to transform the world. In Jesus' name, amen.